0: So oh, good morning, guys. Would you pray with me as we turn to God's word together? Father, we thank you for the truths that we get to sing together as a church family. We know we sing them to you. Uh, we sing them to ourselves, and we also sing them uh, one to another. Uh, there is a full dimension to worship that it is both vertical and horizontal as we declare truths, Lord. And I thank you for the glorious truth that we've sung this morning. Uh, Even in this song, Jesus paid it all. That when we come before your throne one day, we will not be before you with a sense of guilt or shame or dread or terror, but simply in awe because we will see you in all of your glory and yet we will know that we are right with you because of Jesus. And Lord, there couldn't be a more dramatic change from the way things were deserving judgment to the way things are welcomed into your eternal kingdom. Uh, So we rejoice, and Lord, we don't ever want to grow tired of that. We don't ever want to grow complacent or even comfortable with that. Uh, But I pray that your great grace and your generosity in our lives, Lord, would animate the way that we live and behave and act toward you and others. We come to your word again, Lord, because... It is the authority in our lives, and we ask that God, by your Holy Spirit, you would drive these truths deep into our heart, changing the very ways that we think and feel, so that we might live lives of obedience and gratitude to you. So Holy Spirit, teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you want to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, um, that's where we are this morning, Uh, We're continuing on in our series here, The Household of Faith. Uh, Just had about four specific topics that we wanted to address, uh, kind of as matters of church health, just some health issues for our own local fellowship. And I, I will tell you, there may be an extension to this. Somebody got to me earlier and planted a seed of it. They thought there might be one more talk that would be appropriate. And so I'm praying that over and thinking about that. With the Lord, and so we'll see. This could be the end of it, or there could be one more week before we get on to the Gospel of Mark. So uh, you'll have to wait and see what happens there. 2 Corinthians 9 5 through 15. I hope to lose about 20 pounds, I hope to improve my retirement savings, I hope to eat healthier. Not really, but I hope to reduce my personal debt. I hope to read my Bible more regularly and in context. I hope to spend more time alone with my spouse. So These are all common sentiments that we might have, we might express, we might just think them inwardly to ourselves, we might even have the courage to say it out loud to somebody else. But rarely do hopes translate into reality unless they are accompanied by a plan, right? Uh, if we're going to lose 20 pounds, we're going to have to talk about diet and exercise, or amputation, which is another another option. You could just <laughs> lop off a limb, and uh, that's a that's a you know a bad idea, but it's one. If we're gonna do better in saving for our retirement, we're actually gonna have to spend less, right? And we're gonna have to decide an amount of increased savings. And we're probably, to be disciplined, gonna have to have an automatic transfer into that 401k. Or for some of you, we might actually have to get about setting up that 401k. If we're gonna read our Bibles more, we're gonna need a plan of action. We're gonna need to know what book are we reading? How much are we reading at a time? Uh, When will we do it? Where will we do it? Who will we discuss what we learn with? Who will hold us accountable to it? Hopes fail for lack of a plan, right? Hopes fail for lack of a plan. We can have the best intentions in the world, but without a plan, they fall flat. Or as the old saying goes, if you fail to have a plan, you are planning to, fail. You got it. You know it. And so today as we're kind of continuing through this uh, series, The Household of Faith, the topic we have in front of us this morning is generosity. So if you're a visitor this morning, I say to you, welcome. We're talking about money. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) Welcome. And um, I'm going to be up front with you too. The reason that this topic has made it into this series is because our giving at the church here is a bit down. It's lower than we typically see this time of year and that's that's prompted some concern and so that's why i'm i'm bringing it up uh, to you Uh, if you open your bulletins and look at the second page there in the bottom right hand corner every week we list out our giving uh in relationship to our budget and uh, somebody once called this the sermon on the amount which i thought was a pretty good description of that that little box there but uh, we we try to keep you informed of that every week so you can Plan your own giving according to, uh, to needs and those kinds of things. And the message that you're gonna hear this morning and the main thing you're gonna hear this morning is this, plan to be generous. Plan to be generous. I believe that is the biblical principle on giving and on resources. So again, we're in 2 Corinthians uh, 9, starting in uh, uh, verse five. Let me give you a little bit of context here because we are sort of parachuting in again to this passage. Um, 2 Corinthians is the last of what we actually think were four letters from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. When we read 1 Corinthians, we see that he references another letter that was previous to it. And then 2 Corinthians also references a, a letter previous to it that is sometimes referred to as the severe letter. So we, what we know as 1st and 2nd Corinthians are probably actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians if we were to have all of the letters, we don't. Uh, we don't have all of them in the canon, we only have the two. But I think just knowing that the other two existed kinda helps to provide a little bit of context about what's going on between Paul and the church of Corinth here. In other words, Paul has confronted the Corinthians on so many matters, particularly of immorality, that it has created a sense of tension almost between him and the church. Uh, In fact, so much so that he spends the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians defending his apostleship, defending his legitimacy as an apostle. Uh, It almost seems as though Corinth Uh, has challenged his legitimacy, kind of like their own recall effort. We're not sure about the Apostle Paul. Let's have a recall campaign for this guy. And so he has to defend his role as an apostle. Uh, He has, basically what we're looking at this morning in chapter nine uh, is, is that he has, even though there was this tension that had existed, that had not stopped him from having a difficult conversation with this church about money and about giving, particularly taking up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. And so that's the topic that he was willing to address even amidst all of the controversy here. Um, In 1 Corinthians, he's already announced this collection, but here in 2 Corinthians, it seems as though he's getting on to the logistics of it. How is this gonna happen? When and how do they go about taking, taking up the collection itself? And as he teaches this, and sort of prepares them, he lays out some principles on giving and some practices that I think are very instructive for us. And so again, the big point, or really two points that you're gonna hear today are this. Number one, that God's people must be generous. That's the biblical teaching. And secondly, in order to be generous, we're gonna have to have a plan. And so that's what I want you to hear this morning and and some others here. Let me take you to 2 Corinthians 9, starting verse five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So there's our passage, and the first thing I want to draw out of this is give generously because you want to reap generously. There is a proportionality here that is inescapable. And I'll start by saying that a lot of times this passage is misused or used out of context. Oftentimes it's referenced in terms to evangelism. So generously the gospel or witness often so that you might have lots of conversions and see lots of people decide for Christ. And so oftentimes that's how it's used, but you see that's not the context here, is it? This is all about the offering that Paul plans to take up. This is about how one handles their financial resources. Uh, it's about money and it's about the kingdom of God and this, uh, this sort of rule of, of relationship. If you want to reap generously, you need to sow generously. We know this in the agricultural world, right? If you want to reap a lot of carrots, you plant a lot of carrots. If you want to uh, reap a lot of, uh, of, of cucumbers, you plant a lot of cucumbers. If you want to reap a lot of squash, you just shouldn't. You shouldn't want to reap a lot of squash. This squash is disgusting, right? It's basically slime. It's, uh, I, I, I can't stand it. But there is this, this rule of proportionality. If we want a big harvest, if we want a great harvest, we need to have a great investment. And that's what Paul is, is teaching here. So if our desire is to see God work in people's lives and to see his kingdom expanded and grown we're going to have to be generous with our financial resources that's just how it is it impacts people's lives their basic needs it funds disciple making efforts and the spread of the gospel and if that's the case and our money helps those things go then we need to be generous that is the correlation here uh, this might be a little bit of a funny point, might needle a few of you. That's okay, I'm not above needling you. Uh, it's the prerogative of pastoring, I think. We don't want to be lovers of money, but the reality is money is how the world goes around, isn't it? Do you want to buy a house? Uh, you know, you don't walk up to it and say, you know, I really like your home, how about you just give it to me? That's just not how it works. You want to buy a car, you need a new car, you don't just walk up to the, you know, the car lot and drive off with it. Everything we do involves a transaction of resources. Uh, Ecclesiastes ten nineteen teaches this as well. Money is the answer to everything, it says. Now, I don't mean to say that money supplants God or supplants our trust in God, but it's a part of God's economy. It's a part of the world such as it is. And God uses money to further his kingdom. Financial resources funds missionaries. It provides relief for the needy. It helps those who are hungry or or maybe food insecure with what they need. It redeems people's time so they can be about full-time ministry. Money pays the electric bill. It puts up the walls and it keeps a place like this going. Money is the answer to everything. It's part of the things, part of one of the things that God uses to keep the world going round and he wants us to put our resources in that effort to partner with him in that. In other words, if we wanna see great results, we need to be generous in our giving. The harvest is proportional to the seed sown. Uh, so what's the biblical principle on how we handle our money? It's one word, generosity, generous. That is the New Testament principle. In this passage, seven times the word generous or generosity is used in just 10 verses. And as we've taught a bunch over the years, repetition is what it's the volume knob of the passage. It draws attention and focus. 7 times in 10 verses Paul's got it on full blast. The principle of giving and resources in the church is generosity. In Proverbs 11:25, we also find this, a generous person will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. But as I was saying at the beginning, if generosity is the biblical principle for how Christians are to handle our resources and our finances, then we're gonna need a plan, right? We have to have a plan in order to be generous. In other words, if you wait to the end of of the month to decide what you're gonna give, chances are there's not gonna be a lot of margin left in the account to make your decision, right? There'll be likely little left to give. If you wait for inspiration uh, in order to give, the reality is it's unlikely to happen because rarely do we want to part with our hard-earned money, right? Does anybody really love to part with your hard-earned money? If we're impulsive about our giving and not disciplined or intentional, we may give unwisely We may give to wrong things. We may give too much. We may give too little. We may give in a way that empowers something that's not good. We may give in a way that actually harms ourselves. So we're going to need a plan. And I think Paul teaches this, that we are to be intentional in our giving. In verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And one of the ways that we can help our cheerfulness in giving is being disciplined and decided about it so it doesn't happen impulsively. Um, I'll also say this. I don't believe, and this is, this is debated in the church, and that's okay if you have a different opinion on this, but I don't believe that a tithe is the New Testament standard for giving. Tithe was an Old Testament standard. It means a tenth. And so many people uh, give a tithe or 10% and that's how they decide what they're going to give, and that's perfectly fine and that's valid, but I don't think it's a must in the New Testament. I think the New Testament teaching on how much, the Sermon on the Amount in the New Testament is generous. So the standard I think you ought to look at your giving is, is what I'm giving, could what I'm giving be considered generous? And that reframes maybe what you're doing and your calculation, I would love to stand here honestly and tell you uh, the standard is a tithe and you should all give it. Because actually, I think if we were to do that, the giving in the church would probably go up fourfold. The average attender in a church gives between three and 5%. That's a national average, three and five. So if I were to say, it ought to be 10, we would at least double it. if I said, y'all, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I can't do that though because I don't believe, it's not my conviction that that's the New Testament principle. Instead, I think we have to do something harder. With the grace and the liberty and the freedom that God gives to us, we have to do something harder, which is to decide as a matter of our heart what we decide to give, such that it could also be characterized as generous. But this is heart work, and therefore I think it's harder work It's not an easy answer. We also know that giving is something that flows out of our heart, but more than that, the way that we give actually affects our heart. It directs our heart. This is what Jesus taught when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Giving doesn't just follow, it leads our heart. Uh, Next principle here, be cheerful in your giving. Again, Paul is trying to make sure that this isn't high-pressure sales tactic, You know, where he shows up in Corinth and says, give it. He's making sure that he has fronted his message, that he's sent this ahead of them, that they've made plans and, and made all of the preparations so that when he comes, there is a rejoicing of we've already done the work in here, rather than trying to shake it out of them. And um, I'll tell you, there are a lot of risks for a pastor or any teacher teaching on giving today. I'll give you a couple of them. One of those risks for me personally, I am part of the ministry team here at the church. My salary is derived partly by the offerings or by the offerings that come into this church. So it's not my favorite topic because it can look very self-serving, right? So that's one of the risks and you just need to know that. Uh, But a second risk is that when we talk about giving, that it's always guilt-driven heavy-handed, browbeating, driving people to do what they don't want to do. And I wanna be careful about that. So instead of pressing down, what I wanna try to do is hold up some examples of really good, true, and beautiful uh, examples of giving that we find in the scripture. And so the first one I would bring to your mind is actually found in Exodus chapter 35. Maybe you are familiar with this if you know your Bible well. But this is where Israel, having just been uh, delivered from Egypt out in the the wilderness for a while, is prompted by God to take up an offering to build the tabernacle. And as they bring of their gifts and their resources for the building of the tabernacle, the elders have to come out to them and say, please stop. They had to be restrained in their giving because they were being so generous that more came in than they needed. That is the people who have been impacted by the grace of God. Knowing his rescue from Egypt, knowing that he was bringing them in to be a part of his family, building them up into this household of faith, they were so eager to rejoice and to bless God by their gifts. They responded to his grace. Another example I would give you later on, David, when he's taking up an offering for the building of the temple, in uh, First Chronicles 29, we hear his prayer over the sacrifices and offerings that are being brought forward. I want you to hear his heart. So listen to this prayer. Wealth and honor come from you, Lord. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as we're all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. What an amazing heart. Staring at this amassing of resources that have been donated, David stands up and says, Lord, this was all yours. It's not that we've given it. We've only given what was yours originally. Third example I would give to you, this is in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul, just about a chapter before that, uh, where we're in right now in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 8, he gives an example of the Macedonians, another region that we're giving to the same um, uh, collection for the poor in Jerusalem, and the example of the Macedonians is shocking second uh, uh, corinthians eight two in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity that 's a strange formula right Their Overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people." What an incredible heart. And Paul is sharing this example of the Macedonians to the Corinthians. And I think something that we see from all of these examples is this and this might be more the most stinging point that I share today. But our giving is a direct reflection of our understanding of God's grace. Our giving is a direct reflection of our understanding of God's grace. We've seen that we're not to give out of our margins. We're not to give from our leftovers or impulsively or grudgingly or sparingly. Our giving is to be decidedly generous, a response to God's generous grace in our lives. We're to give freely and cheerfully. We're to love our gift. Do You ever see a little one, I'll give this example. My wife was out of school for about 10 days, let's say, uh, as many people are these days. And when she got back to the classroom, One of her little kindergartners who had missed her brought her a gift. It was a little bit of fabric. My wife's a teacher up at at Weller, the Weller Whales, and this fabric had whales all over it. And when Amy got back in the classroom, this little kindergartner said, I have this for you. Big smile on her face. When you see someone who loves to give, who is cheerful, it's such a delight, is it not? And I just give that to you as a little picture of I think the heart of giving that God wants us to have. This is is for you, Lord. I love you and I want to give you something that is a reflection of my understanding of your grace in my life and my love for you. We're to decide in our heart what we're to give. We're to manage our life in such a way that we live in accordance with our heartfelt gift. Thirdly here, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your gener- generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Um, this might be one of the more uh, controversial aspects that I'll share this morning. It almost sounds uh, up front like prosperity gospel. It's not, but hang- so hang in there with me. But I believe what this is teaching is that what we give to the Lord, what we decide to give to the Lord, he will replenish. In other words, God promises here to fund our generosity. That's his word, that's what he says. I'm not making this up. Now, in contrast to uh, uh, sort of the prosperity gospel, prosperity gospel says, if God loves me, he'll enrich me. This says, out of my love for God, I will direct resources towards his work, trusting he will resupply. That's the contrast here. God blesses us to be a blessing to others. In other words, if you're, if you're giving so that you will become rich, will become wealthy and prosperous, uh, you're doing it wrong. The promise here is if you're generous and you make commitments, and some of them on faith, I, the Lord, supply and fund your generosity. We can think about it this way. God is an investor and he's investing in his kingdom and his redemptive plan. And as he scans and looks at the earth, let's just say also he's the best investor ever. And he, like investors, is looking for yield on on what he uh, dispenses. Do you think God gives generously to those who don't bless kingdom efforts. He's looking for return on investment, and he directs his resources to the places where they'll do the most good for him and for his kingdom. In other words, he wants us to be conduits of resources, not cul-de-sacs for them. Martin Luther said it very memorably, God put fingers on our hands for the money to slide through them so he can give us more Whatever a person gives away, God will reimburse, not so that we'll be rich, but that we can continually fund uh, his mission. You guys like stories, and I do too. I'll tell you a story that I heard recently. College student was sort of feeling compelled uh, to give to their uh, new church and feeling a little bit short on funds and and, uh, really struggling with this in the heart level. Do I give, do I not give, how much, what do I do? And they decided in their heart that they were going to begin giving to their new church. And their $60 gift felt like a drop in the bucket compared to the church budget. Not much of an offering, but it also felt like a big sacrifice considering their resources. But at an act of obedience, they gave it. And a few hours later, they got an email from their college that said that they had been awarded an additional $5,000 scholarship. Same day, same day. Now I'll tell you, that doesn't always happen that dramatically or that immediately. But God's word says that he promises to fund our generosity. You will be enriched in every way so that you can continue your acts of generosity. Um, I think there's another amazing passage in the Old Testament where God actually says with regard to giving and offerings, because the temptation is to hold it, to say, I don't know, that's gonna gonna cost, not sure, that's, that's a lot it's more than I'd like to give, I don't know. And God actually says, test me in this. It's the only time I'm aware of in all of the scripture where God says, I dare you, test me, try me in this, see what happens, make my day. Well, he didn't say that, but you get the point. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, Old Testament passage, so it's using that principle there. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse And so what we see here is he says, test me, see if I don't bless you if you release these things. But also another way, another act of his provision is to protect that which we might feel we're laying vulnerable by giving. And God says, try me, see what happens here. So the New Testament principle of giving, generosity. How do we go about it? Intentional. We need to decide in our hearts how much and do so. And it needs to be cheerful. It needs to be out of an abundance of the heart in response to the grace of God. It also needs to be with an element of faith. We see here that God promises to fund our generosity. And then lastly here, invest in order to promote the kingdom of God. Uh, I'll tell you, I think this point is not quite as well supported from this text as some of the other points that I'm drawing out. Nevertheless, I think this is, is true. Uh, that when we determine where we give, we need to look at what's gonna be the best return on investment for the kingdom of God. And I think that's just a wise principle of consideration. And um, you guys know this, on your counter at home, your mail counter, your clutter counter, whatever you guys call it, you've got a number of fundraising opportunities laying right there, right? There's a fundraiser banquet for this, I think even this week. Uh, There's a couple missionaries heading to the field. There's an opportunity for this school that needs such and such. They're, They're there all the time, right? And we're constantly weighing out what are we going to support. And I think one of the considerations that we should keep in mind is what will advance the kingdom of God? What's the best investment? You do it in your financial portfolio. Do it in your spiritual giving portfolio also. A kingdom return on investment. And I think Paul touches on this just a little bit here in the second half of verse 11, where he says, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. It'll make a difference in people's hearts and minds such that they will see and praise God for his action in their life. And I think that's how we need to think about it. The last principle here is this, be generous because it promotes praise to God. Verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everybody else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I think one of the privileges of generosity is you get to see the blessing it is in somebody else's life. You get to see their heart lifted in praise to God. Just this last week, as I reported to the elders in our elder meeting Tuesday night, I shared that last week we had received a very generous offering. Which was uh, significantly above prior weeks. And the first words that came out of a couple of the pastor or the elders' mouths was, Praise God. And that is the joy we get to see when we are generous and support others and support the mission of God. We get to see other people declare praise to Him, we get to lift praise to the Lord. We don't naturally like to part with our money, right? Any of you, anybody love to part with money? If you need a new friend, I'll be your friend. (laughs) I'm just kidding about that. But for most of us, the money in our account represents safety, security, freedom, opportunity, right? When we have money in the bank and we have a healthy margin, we feel strong. When the margin is thin, we feel vulnerable. And I think what that tells us is this, what we do with our money indicates what we really believe about God. And I think there are a lot of professing Christians who are operating as financial deists. In other words, I believe that God is and that he exists and he works in the world, he saved me by his grace, he answers prayer, but when it comes to my money, it's my money, I earned it, I make it, I keep myself secure with it. We're theists believing in a personal God and all these other areas, but oftentimes when it comes to our money, we're deists. I take care of me. I think how we handle our finances is one of the clearest pictures of what we actually think of God. Do we trust God, or do we just trust in our ability to earn? Are we satisfied in the Lord, or do we need to find happiness in material goods and possessions? One of the privileges of generosity towards God and toward his redemptive program is that it promotes praise in other people, even authenticating our faith, as Paul says here. So when a missionary is being sent to the field and the resources come in to launch them and to send them, they can say, praise God, I got a church behind me. When that mission field receives the missionary, and realizes that they have been sent and that they're funded by others such that they can be there to do that ministry, that community can say, praise God, he has worked in the hearts of believers elsewhere to care for us in this way. When a family that is short on food or fuel finds resource come into their home that lifts them up, they can say, praise God, he sees us and moves in the hearts of people to act for our good. And when a church family that is a bit behind in its budget, sees generosity well up within its people, collectively it can say, praise God. We're not here for how much we can amass for ourselves, but we're for God and for his kingdom. When God moves in our hearts to be generous and we release a portion of what he's entrusted to us, we and others get to praise God. So what's the principle here? The principle of handling resources for the Christian is to be generous which requires a plan. The plan that Paul laid out for the Corinthians here, be intentional, decide an amount in your heart. Be cheerful, give it gladly in response to his grace in your life. Give it as a matter of faith. He promises to fund our generosity. Give it in a way that receives a return on investment for God's kingdom. And overall, what we get to see is that when we're generous and we share with others, Praise to God goes up to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I would not want to stand here and declare this as the thoughts and words of Eric. But because you've preserved this as your word through the Apostle Paul's interaction with Corinth and the Macedonians and Israel and the building of the tabernacle and of the temple David's prayers and so much else, we can see your heart for your people that we would be generous with what you have entrusted to us. Lord, may we in our giving show our understanding of the outpouring of your grace in our lives and may it shape what we do in response. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.